The power of the cross of Christ, that is what everything we believe is based upon. And uh, there is someone here this morning who needs to get the message of Hebrews 8 into their life. You're looking at them. There's a good reason why God's given me the privilege to uh, hear each message twice every Sunday. Anyway, please open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. And when you find that, please stand with me as we read God's Word. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. And I will say, too, I want to make an official announcement. We are now officially in the, in the confusing middle of Hebrews. And uh, many people are tempted to skip chapters 7 through 10 and just go to chapter 11 because it's easier that way. And it might be easier, but it's not better. It's not better. God has some great things to say to us in these middle chapters. So let's read the word of God. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. By as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand, to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord! For all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And Lord God, we thank you that we can come today and and sing your praises and listen to your word And we pray, Lord, you'd open our eyes and open our hearts that we would see wonderful things in it today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And please be seated. Two of our biggest challenges are asking for help and resolving conflict. Asking for help and resolving conflict are not easy for us. It's hard for us to ask somebody to help us. We'd rather help someone else. And we find it difficult to, re- to resolve conflict when we're in it. But we like to think we're self-sufficient. But it's just not the case. Uh, spiritually speaking, we need someone 
to lead us. And we need someone to run interference for us when problems arise. What we need is a neutral third party who will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. A go-between. Bridging the gap between us and God. Now what I want you to see today is that Jesus is our minister leading the way as well as our mediator running interference for us. Now all throughout this letter which reads like a sermon, the writer has been making a specific point and here he restates it in verse 1. It reminds his hearers so that now he can build upon this one main point. And the main point is this, that we have a high priest. We have such a high priest that has been spoken of. That's the central message that we have. It is a present possession. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who fulfills all Old Testament predictions and all foreshadowing. He has been systematically showing how it makes the most sense to follow Jesus. It makes the most sense to believe and to follow Jesus not any other person or system that we might be tempted to put our trust in and our confidence in. Verse 1 tells us that the main point is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus has taken his seat. Levitical priests, they never sat down. Their work was never done. You ever feel like that? My work is never done. I cannot rest. Jesus sits... Because his work of pain for the sins of the world, of pain for my sins and your sins, has been accomplished, was accomplished at the cross. And this gives a picture of Jesus as a minister, a minister in heaven. Jesus is a heavenly minister, one who serves, one who leads. And he does so from an exalted position, sitting at the right hand of the Father. The place of honor, the place of authority, the place of strength. Jesus sitting at the right hand. Verse 2 tells us that he is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle. He is a minister. Now human priests were ministers. Human priests were ministers who served the earthly tabernacle. And Hebrews tells us that Jesus is a minister in the sanctuary. But not just any sanctuary and not the earthly sanctuary. The heavenly sanctuary sanctuary the true tabernacle the dwelling of god god's heavenly dwelling places and jesus is conducting worship there jesus is conducting worship in the true sanctuary built by god not an imitation of something better but the real thing true the word true is used in the gospel of john in contrast not to what is false but to what is symbolic the earthly tabernacle was symbolic of the heavenly tabernacle Now, the original readers would have been very familiar with the procedures of the temple worship. There were important elements to them. In God's plan, though, it was all a copy of what was to come. It was all a foreshadowing. Moses had built a tent following God's exact blueprint. God said, see that you build it exactly the way that I instruct. And he built that, and it pointed to the need for sacrifice due to sin. And it pointed to the promise of forgiveness that God would bring about through his mercy and through the shedding of blood. All this was a shadow of a deeper reality. All this pointed to the cross, to the cross of Jesus, the cross that we just spoke of, the power of the cross upon which everything in the Christian faith and life is built. 
That was where the ultimate sacrifice was made. You see, Jesus is in the real temple. He's not in the earthly temple. He is in the real temple, in heaven, the heavenly sanctuary. He has gone before us into heaven, and that is where we will dwell. This really points to the eternal rest of the believer in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. This points to the better country and the strong city of Hebrews chapter 11. This points to the, to the kingdom that is unshakable that we see in Hebrews chapter 12. But what's the nature of Christ's ministry? In the Old Testament program, the, the minister performed the service that was required of him to do. It was all laid out. This included offering uh, sacrifices. He was assigned this task to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin, to take, place, to take care of sin. Verse 3 tells us that every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifice. There was a purpose. There was a reason why they did it. And so it is necessary that this high priest of which we speak, this Jesus, have something to offer as well. And we see that Jesus did not bring something in his hands. <laughs> no, he brought himself, himself to offer. And the construction of the Greek here is very interesting. It says he would have something to offer. It is in the era's tense and it used symbolizing or emphasizing that Christ's offering was done once for all which goes right along and is consistent with the repeated emphasis on the singular, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus in our place, uh, up against the contrast with the plurality of sacrifices that the Old Testament priests would have had to make again and again and again. Jesus offered himself once for all. It was the greatest offering by the greatest minister. The death of Christ on the cross. It's the aspect of his high priestly ministerial position and work that there was one perfect sacrifice offered for all which gained admission for believers into the heavenly sanctuary where he dwells and where he ministers. It's a beautiful picture. Jesus as our high priest. Uh, but he's a different kind of priest. We know that. He's a different kind of priest. And verse 4 tells us, Something very interesting. That if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Now the writer of the Hebrews uh, was writing most likely in about uh, A.D. 60. Roughly 10 years or so before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Here's a wild thought. The temple was still in operation. Jesus had died on the cross paying for the sins of the world, but for 40 years or so before the temple was destroyed, they were living in the old shadow, still doing those same sacrifices over and over and over again. Verse 4 says, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest of all, since there are those, there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Right then, when it was being written, most likely there were those that were doing those same sacrifices to take care of what? Uh, the sin that Jesus died for on the cross? Is that a wild thought or what? See, the law regulated everything concerning the earthly priesthood. By the law, Jesus would have been excluded from being a priest because he was not of the tribe of Levi. We know that he was of a different order of priesthood, that of Melchizedek, which we know came in before Levi. And the temple was still in operation. And so the Savior who had come to supersede it, they were still toiling away at the old, the old shadow. Isn't that wild? 
Now, the sacrifice had been made once for all, but for about 40 years, in a wilderness of their own choosing, they were back in the shadows. The overlapping system, the obsolete, overlapped the reality. We just got a new phone system here at Grace. We have a similar situation. Got this brand new phone system. It's better, a lot better than the old system by virtue of just the technology that has taken place since we had the old system. But here's an interesting thing. We knew this would happen, but there is a point where uh, at a certain point you may call in and get the old phone message because that's still running out. That's still, we, I guess, you know, till the end of the month kind of thing. We still have that, so sometimes it kind of goes over on top of the new one after hours. It's an interesting picture. We've got this much better system, but somehow there's a default that goes over there. And kind of the Jews, in, in a much bigger way, was, were still locked up in the old system when they had this new, better way that was easily accessible that they were ignoring. It's like having a new car in your drive. It's like having a new car in your garage. You know, got a brand new Lexus in your garage, but you're still driving your old beater. You know, you paid for the Lexus with cash. You've got the key, but you just want to don't want to mess it up. So you, you leave it in the garage. You know, uh, it doesn't make sense, does it? Now the earthly priests were there to serve God's purposes. They there was a purpose that God had them to do, and they tried. They tried hard, but they didn't all. They didn't all make it. A lot of them failed. At their task. But as our heavenly minister, Jesus serves the purposes of God on our behalf and fully succeeds because his work surpasses what the Old Testament priests did. He's working from a better covenant, he's working with better promises. It's a better ministry. He performs God's will, he fulfills God's purpose. And God's purpose was to save a people for himself, was to Purify for himself a people uh, very interested in good deeds and doing what is right that would show God's greatness and draw others to himself. And Jesus is that heavenly minister who offered himself and served that purpose by even now praying for us, interceding for us according to the will of God. See, the earthly service of the Jewish priests was an example, an example of the heavenly things, a shadow. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, these priests that offer the gifts, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses had been warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, remember, do it the way I instruct. See, it's a copy of something bigger. It's a type or a pattern. It's a replica. Uh, That word pattern comes from a way, uh, a a stamp or impression that was made, uh, struck from a die or a seal. The, the copy or the shadow was a figure, it was a draft, it was a sketch, it was a pattern, not the real thing. Shadow is used in contrast to the reality which casts the shadow, which makes the shadow. A shadow is an outline, a general form where there's no distinguishing characteristics. Paul said in Colossians 2 that the Old Testament regulations of diet and holidays and Sabbath were merely a shadow of things to come, but the substance was of Christ. The essence of the Levitical sacrificial system was just a pattern of the heavenly reality which centered on Christ and on his cross and on his finished work. Now, uh, some people come to Hebrews 8 and in these middle sections of Hebrews and think, you know, I'm in no danger of doing anything of the sort that these new Hebrew Christians were in danger of. Back in those days, 
the Jewish uh, faith was allowed and, and tolerated, the Christian faith was persecuted. And they were in danger of going back from their newfound faith in Christ to what they knew, to the old. And, and we come to this and we say, we're in no danger of doing that. So where's the practical, infer- the practical implications for us? Well, there are, I would say, Hebrews 8 has some very practical implications for our daily lives. You see, as our heavenly minister who is serving and giving, Jesus affects our attitude and our outlook on life. Our attitude and our outlook. See, God wants us to be humble, not arrogant. And our attitudes and outlook don't always match the truths that our faith is based upon. And in the heat of the moment, in the midst of the battle, we sin. And we say and do things that we would never do when we're thinking clearly. But in the heat of the moment, in those moments, we forget that Jesus offered himself for our sins. But we're too focused on someone else's sins at the time and we lose perspective. We're focused on me and my feelings and opinions about others and what's going on rather than what's pleasing God. That's what happens in our daily life. And some of these truths that we hold to, that we would be so strong about, they go out the window in those moments. But see, Jesus affects our attitude and our outlook. He affects our attitude towards God's chosen people, toward the Jews. It's really, some people have taken over the years that, these, that this chapter is anti-Semitic, that it's about the Jews being rejected. It's not about that. It's about them rejecting Jesus. But the gospel is not about the, the God rejecting his people. And we must remember Christianity is a Jewish religion that has grafted in non-Jews. The Jews and Gentiles. It's, it's about the rejection by God, excuse me, the rejection of God by people he has called to himself. But it's about God's acceptance of all who will believe. That God accepts all who come to him by faith. So God wants to change our our heart towards God's chosen people, the Jews. You know, Hebrews, again, was probably written before A.D. 70, when the Jerusalem temple would have been in full use at that time. And the writer of Hebrews had a knowledge of the temple. He had a deep love and concern for the Jewish people because he probably was a Jew, the writer of the Hebrews. But see, Jesus affects our attitude must affect our attitude towards Jews, but also towards all people. Towards husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and children and co-workers and complete strangers, by the way. You know, if we'll think about it, most of us are pretty exclusive when it comes to who we will associate with. And just think for a moment to grasp just how exclusive we are spiritually and socially. Think for a moment of people that you would never dream of inviting to Grace Church. By the way, second hour has, has room, right? First hour is a bit crowded, but second hour has room. But think of the people that you would never, never think of inviting here. Think of the people that you would never think of inviting to your home. Why is that? We have different reasons for one reason or another. But think about it. These are all people. All people for whom Christ died. All people for whom Christ, our minister, offered himself. See, we want to die to self and we want to live for God, but we fluctuate. And God is sovereign. He knows. He sees. He is gracious. And we are glad. He is patient. 
See, Jesus is our heavenly minister. Jesus is ministering in a different place. Not the same uh, as the, the Levitical priest did. He is ministering in heaven on our behalf. And flowing from that truth, we see Jesus as a heavenly minister. Then we see another truth flowing from that truth. An important facet of him being a minister is that he is also a mediator. A mediator. The Greek word for me, that translates mediator was a common business term in those days. And it's, it's used in the sense of being an arbitrator or a go-between. He's a mediator. Uh, to use a sports terminology, he's a, he's a referee. Baseball, he's an umpire. He is a lawyer, an advocate, an arbitrator, a go-between, a good middleman. Between us and the Father. And Jesus is a superior mediator. His mediation is superior. Another word that gets a little bit tough to understand though is covenant. It's not a word we use a lot and we don't really understand it. What's a covenant? A covenant is a binding agreement. It's a binding agreement. It's a meaningful agreement between two parties. And this term can be difficult to grasp, but let me illustrate by two common things. Marriage and mortgages. Marriage. A marriage, a husband and a man and a woman come together and become husband and wife and they make vows. It's a covenant. We see it as a loose contract that can be broken if things don't work out our way or if things happen. And so due to sin, what is allowed is the disillusion of marriage, but it is meant to be a covenant a covenant that is a binding agreement. And some of you feel like you've failed miserably in the past or even present in regards to marriage, in regards to its covenant of marriage. And I understand that. And that's, again, we say God is sovereign, God knows, God is good, God is gracious. But marriage is meant to be a covenant. It is not meant to be broken. And then what about a mortgage? You go and buy a house. And you go sit down with another party and you sign your life away. You sign your life away, and I will tell you, I will guarantee, you will be held to that covenant you make. They will collect. And some people get into these mortgages where they're upside down when they start. They're, they owe more money uh, every day as they go forward. They creative financing. Either way, it is a covenant that we make. It is a binding agreement. It is a meaningful agreement between two parties. So that might help us to understand covenant a bit. But it goes much deeper in the biblical sense. In the sanctuary of heaven, Jesus is seated. His work is done. And again, he was never a priest in earthly terms where the work was never done. Always needed to be repeated. But his priesthood is superior in that he has made a way for a relationship that the old covenant could not secure. He has made a way for a relationship. We could not keep God's law. We could not keep covenant with God. So we could not have peace with God. The good thing God had other plans. See, verse 7 tells us that if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Verse 6 told us, Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Why? It was enacted on better promises. And if the first covenant had been faultless, verse 7 says, there would have been no occasion to even look for another one. See, the old had to be replaced. The first was not faultless. There were issues. But you got to remember, it was not bad. It was good. It was based on God's perfect truth. It did what it was supposed to do. The old covenant was not intended to produce justification. 
The old covenant was not intended to produce permanent right standing with God. It was temporary. It was to show sin. It was to show human inability. And so the fault in the law was not in the law, but in man. Man had to perform it, and therein lies the problem. Man was sinful and unable to keep covenant, unable to keep his end of the bargain, and so it fell down. The old had to be replaced. And verse 8 introduces the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. In the shortest, by one verse, the shortest chapter in Hebrews, we have here the longest Old Testament quote found in the New Testament. It's Jeremiah 31. In fact, I want to read it straight from Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, God is offering, He is speaking. He's offering something. He's offering a new covenant of promise to a people that were very aware that they had failed and they had disobeyed. A people very aware of their sin. God was offering people who were hopelessly lost with a way out. Let's read. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. No, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant I will make with the, the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they will not teach again every man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will not remember. I will not remember their sin. What God is saying is that he will no longer relate to them on the basis of that sin. That in the new covenant, God no longer relates to us on the basis of our sin. The law uh, was all about sin and temporary relief from sin, but a constant reminder of sin. The new covenant, God does not relate to us on the basis of our sin. He relates to us on the basis of Jesus, on on the relationship that Jesus creates with us. And so some of us go around very condemned, feeling very condemned often. And that's not from God. Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And God is now relating to us on the basis of the finished work of Christ. On the basis of the righteousness of Christ. On his shed blood. That is good news for us. We don't have to have that constant reminder of sin. See, the new covenant is in contrast with the old where the people of Israel had been given a covenant by God when he delivered them from the land of Egypt. That's what he said in verse 9. That's the covenant God's talking about that he instituted with them when he delivered them from Egypt. And what did they say in Exodus 24? I'll, I'll summarize. They said, we will do what God says and we will obey. We will be obedient. You see, God's covenant was this, pretty much. Listen and do what I say. Just, just li- it's like how some of your parents feel sometimes. Just, just listen and, and do what I say. And the people replied, we will listen and we will be obedient. That's what they said. 
That was their part. And you know they could not do that. Prophet after prophet came by reminding them, listen, do what God says. We will listen. We will obey. And then they fall flat on their faces. Just like you and me when we try to do it in our own strength. But guess what? In 621 BC, in Josiah's day, Hilkiah the priest found a book. He found the book of the law in the temple. And he dusted it off. Isn't that amazing? They found the word of God in the temple. (laughs) They didn't know it was there. It had gone by the wayside. And he dusted off and he reads it for this young king, Josiah, who had become a king at like age eight or nine. And he tore his clothes when he heard the words. He brought about a national repentance. They returned to God. They rededicated themselves to God. And that lasted for a little while. It didn't last that long. Again and again, they and everyone else could not keep covenant with God. You know why? They didn't have the moral power to match their intention. They didn't have the moral strength to match their intentions. But Jesus changes all that with this new covenant. In verse 10 we read, this is the covenant. So here's the covenant that I will make. It's this, I will put their laws, my laws, excuse me, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. He offers to put his law on our hearts. This is linked to the promise of Ezekiel that God was in the business of giving a new heart to his uh, repentant, returning people. In in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, that I'm going to give you a new heart and I'm going to put my spirit within you. Heart transplants have been going on for quite a while. They're going to even be more of of a regular thing. And physically, it, 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 makes, it helps the person live. <laughs> you get a heart transplant, you can live. But in spiritually speaking, the recipient of a new heart is giving the ability not just to live as we please, but to keep God's righteous standard. To keep God's unchanging requirements of his, of his law. See, and it's more than memorizing God putting his law upon our hearts. It's more than memorizing. We ought to be memorizing the word of God. We ought to be memorizing the scriptures. It's good. But think about this. Deuteronomy 6. They were to have the, the, God's words upon their hearts and to teach them and to think about them and to go by the way. But memorization can't guarantee performance. Simply memorizing cannot guarantee that you will do what you memorize. I know far more than I do. I know far more than I obey. That's why I need these sermons twice every Sunday. So you can't guarantee performance, but a new heart, one that desires what God wants, a changed heart, a changed nature that goes, wants to go toward God, well, that makes all the difference. You see, verse 8 shows us what Jesus does. Verse, uh, excuse me, verse 11 shows us what Jesus does. He says they're not going to teach each other, you know, five easy ways to know God anymore. They're going to teach. They're not going to say, here, you should know the Lord. They will know me. Why will they know him? Because he will reveal himself. He allows us to have a relationship with him. He effectively reconciles. Jesus effectively reconciles. He brings warring parties together. Parties that were at enmity with one another. Parties that were at odds. He brings them together. And the communication in some of our relationships, some of our 
closest human relationships degenerates down and reduced down to insults often. But with God, here's how he responds to us. I love you. I love you. I love you. Over and over again. I am gracious. I am patient. I am merciful. See, with God, the hostility was all on our part. The enmity was all ours. None of his. You can look it up in in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. You can look it up in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. But God initiates a relationship with us. He breaks down the dividing wall. He takes away the enmity that was on our part by the blood of his cross. He is our arbitrator. He is our go-between, between man and God. And he goes to God on our behalf. He goes to God on our behalf. He reconciles us to God. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 14, here's what he did. He said, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Nailed it to the cross. He took away the enmity. He's our God. He represents us in heaven. See, Jesus, to quote, I think, Tyndale, Jesus is the perfect atone maker. He's the perfect atone maker. He conserves the interests of both parties. He preserves and protects God's honor and holiness. No sin can dwell with God. But he also secures our rescue, our reclamation as offenders. We're brought to peace with the one we offended. What else does Jesus do? He reconciles us, but he also he brings us to God. In verse 12, we read, I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I will remember them no more. Like Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our sins from us. Now, he brings us to God, but how does he do it? He initiates contact, and he forgives our sins. See, without that, we could not come to God. God will not allow the presence of sin into his presence. He is perfect and holy, and only someone who is perfect and holy can appear before him. So what does he do? He forgives us. He cleanses us. He removes the debt. He removes the stain. He removes everything that keeps us from him. And we stand in the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, he sees the finished work of Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He gives us right standing with himself. Permanently. Permanently. The slate forever wiped clean. And now nothing can get in the way. And as Romans 8, 31 through 39 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And I'll tell you, there were also implications for daily life. uh, Hebrews 8 is very uh, practical for daily living if we will just look beyond the surface. There are implications to Jesus being our mediator for our daily life. Jesus changes as our mediator he changes our living and our sharing of the truth see he transforms our hearts and our lives and the ramifications of that are seen on two fronts in our public life how we share the truth but in also in our private life that comes first the private life that where where people don't see you see it's not about externals 
It's not about externals. It's about gospel-changed people from the inside out. Gospel-changed. It's a relationship with God reaching its fullest meaning in heaven. See, Hebrews 8.11 shows the wonderful reality of a personal relationship with God. We talk about it all the time. Here's a place that shows where it comes from. God said, they will know me. Because I will reveal myself to them. I will initiate towards them, bringing them to myself, reconciling them to myself, and changing their hearts, changing their lives. See, it's not mere intellectual knowledge I know about God. It's not that. It's that I truly can know him in a real, daily, ongoing relationship that marriage is the best picture of. And this knowledge is at the heart of the Christian faith. This knowledge of God, that God has revealed himself to us and he allows us to to know him. To be in relationship with him and therefore we can sing, I am his and he is mine. Amazing. And these words of Jeremiah, these words of Jeremiah came alive about 600 years after they were spoken. In Jerusalem, in an upper room, when Jesus poured out wine and Gave it to his disciples and said, this is the new covenant. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Through this foretold death on a cross, which the Lord's Supper always points to, all the offers of a new relationship with God are now available to be enjoyed personally, just as we take the the cup and, and drink personally. See, Jesus offers us a heart free from the slavery to sin. So it's not about externals, it's about internals. But what about the external part? What about our sharing of our faith with others? What do we tell them? What do, we, what do they hear? See, Romans 8, 3, and 4 tells us what the law, weak as it was, could not do. God did, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And he condemned sin in the flesh. But what do we tell how do we humbly and boldly share the, the truth? See, God has given better promises right here. We see it. I will do this. I will do it. I will do it. Well, we tell them three things, and here's the heart of the gospel, Hebrews style. The heart of the gospel, Hebrews style. That first of all, the part about God's law being on the heart. That's God initiating. God initiating. He initiates a relationship with us. And Then the the part about knowing God personally, that's God transforming. He transforms our hearts and our lives. We try, God transforms. And then the part about blotting out our sin, forgiving our sin. That's God forgives. God forgives our sins permanently. So we can share that God initiates toward us. He transforms us when we respond in faith. And he forgives our sin. And our prayer for them is much like what my six year old uh, Savannah prays uh, really daily for some of our friends and neighbors who don't know Christ. He, the, she prays that they would become a Christian, that they would come to know you and know who you are and know what you have done for them. That's our prayer for, for people that we know that do not know Jesus, that they would become a Christian, that they would know who God is and know what he has done for them. You know, the The born-again heart is grateful. The born-again heart is grateful because 
It, it doesn't say, wow, I've been forgiven of my sin, now I'll do anything I want because I'll be forgiven. No, the born-again heart says, I am so grateful for the forgiveness God has given that I don't want to sin. God help me. And the born-again heart wants to share that truth with people who don't have it. Even the ones that you look at and despise. Even the ones that I look at and despise. See, verse 13 tells us the new makes the old obsolete. It's going away. The old is ready to disappear. It's no longer useful. See, the new covenant remains forever. The new covenant is that in which we stand. We stand by grace. And so here's what we need to do. We need to think clearly about what it means to be a Christian. And then we need to share boldly how others can be free as well. God uses humble, bold, gospel-changed people who love Jesus. Who love Jesus, and God uses them to do his work. Would the God, well, I pray that God would use us today, this very day, to do that. To do today what he calls us and enables us to do by his strength. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you and we thank you that you are so good. Oh Lord, we love you and we thank you for what you have done. And we pray that you would give us your grace, your strength to go this day and internally love you and honor you and worship you. And externally shine the light of that truth both in our families, in, in, in this community of faith, and in, this, in the community in which we live. And we pray that it would be all for your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, please stand with me. And I want to invite anybody that needs prayer for anything. You may want to come to know Jesus from what I was just explaining. Please, uh, I invite you. I'm, I'll be down here, myself and a few others, to pray with you about that or anything. Anything, we, we need to pray with each other often. And so um, I just want to say God bless you and go in peace and serve the Lord.